Hello, and welcome back to The Silent Why. You might remember a little while ago, I did a few episodes called Graveyard Musings, where I wandered around our local graveyard musing about what I saw. Well, it's back. But this is an extended international edition, because it not only contains my musings from the world's largest cemetery for Commonwealth soldiers, it also gives you a bit of the history of why it's there and the other ways that these soldiers are being remembered. Last Christmas, 2022, Chris and I decided to go away for Christmas, for the first time since we got married 18 years ago. And we went to Belgium. From our house in England, that's a three to four hour drive, a 30 minute transfer under the English Channel. Keep your windows open halfway throughout the crossing. And then just another hour drive through France and into Belgium. Yes, folks from big countries, that's how we roll in Europe. Three countries in just under three hours. And just a side note, I wasn't feeling very well for most of our trip, unfortunately. I was feeling pretty rough with a virus cold thing, so you might just pick up on that. I hadn't been to Belgium before, but Chris had been a couple of times over the last few years, mostly for the craft beer scene, but he'd return every time saying, I must take you to see the war history. Now, I knew it had to be something special for him to say that because, well, war history really isn't something I'm known for seeking after. However, he was right. It was fascinating, humbling and inspiring all at once. In fact, it was probably the one form of loss I was faced with where I thought I could potentially use the words I can't imagine in the right context. I know a lot of people we've spoken to on the podcast don't like hearing these words when they're grieving because it puts a wall between them and the person saying it, and I totally get that. But in this context of losing hundreds of thousands of people, the deaths of this many men in one place at one time for one cause, well, it was hard to imagine how people got through that. I could imagine the impact it would have, but not quite how people coped. While I was there, I recorded a few bits of audio as I walked around the war cemetery, and now, yes, six months later, I'm finally getting them sorted into an episode for you. So it's an international version of Graveyard Musings. To help you visualise it, I'm going to put some images on the blog and a link in the show notes in case you want to see that but I'll just give you a bit of information on the area that we stayed in first. We stayed in Ypres when we were there, specifically for the history and the beer. And it didn't hurt they have the most amazing marzipan shop in Bruges nearby too. In this area, during the First World War, there were a few battles that took place in the Ypres salient, including the First Battle of Ypres, 1914, the Second Battle of Ypres, 1915, and the Third Battle of Ypres, known as the Battle of Passchendaele, 1917. The Battle of Passchendaele, by far the worst for casualties and deaths, was for control of the south and the east of the Belgium city of Ypres in West Flanders. Now, even if you're not into history, you might have heard of Flanders Fields, a common name for the World War I battlefields in Belgium between West and East Flanders. The fighting was between the German and the Allied armies, which included Belgium, France, Britain, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. In an article called Passchendaele, Inside the First World War's Infamous Slaughter in the Mud, by Daryl Duthie in 2017, he wrote about what happened there during the First World War. And there's a link in the bio for the full article. He said this, One of the bloodiest and most controversial battles in World War I, the Passchendaele Offensive came to an end on November 10th, 1917. It had been a clash of titans, a wearying three-and-a-half-month ordeal in the mud during which more than half a million men on both sides were killed or wounded. Basically, the British were planning to break through the semicircle of German trenches on the high ground overlooking Ypres. Ypres spelt Y-P-R-E-S, with a silent S. It took me a long while to work out how to pronounce it. And that's where we were staying. 
Once the British got through, they were going to make for the U-boat bases on the coast to draw the Germans away from the French army that was struggling in the wake of another battle. But heavy rain, the wettest August for 30 years, and massive artillery bombardments turned the ground at Passchendaele into a bog that they had to battle through. Finally, the ruins of the village of Passchendaele were liberated and the German trenches fell. Darrell Duthie said, The appalling casualties, the mud and the overall futility of the offensive have made Passchendaele an emblem of the mind-boggling waste of the First World War. Apparently, in June 1917, British, Canadian and Australian tunnellers planted 21 massive explosive mines. When they were detonated in rapid succession, the rumble could be heard as far away as London. Two of the mines failed to explode. One was detonated by lightning in 1955, killing a cow, and another was discovered under a Belgian farm, but even now is too dangerous to dismantle. Casualties of the entire battle are disputed and debated, but the Imperial War Museum website says this. The Allies suffered over 250,000 casualties, soldiers killed, wounded or missing, during the Third Battle of Ypres. Casualties among German forces are also in the region of 200,000. The Commonwealth War Graves Commission commemorates over 76,000 soldiers who died during the Third Battle of Ypres. More than half have no known grave. This was all across just five miles, or eight kilometres of ground that was taken, which works out that a man was killed or wounded for every 2.5 centimetres of ground gained. Over a hundred years after the battle, the countryside still regularly throws up reminders of the history. In fact, an entire unit of the Belgian military has the job of disposing of this iron harvest. Unexploded shells from another century. Millions and millions of shells were fired. And as you drive around the area now, you see concrete posts and telegraph poles with holes in, where if farmers find unexploded shells on their land, they place them in there for collection. We saw many when we were there, and I'll put photos on the blog. It's said that more than 100 tonnes of unexploded items are still discovered every year. One of the history buffs that we bumped into made the mind-blowing comment that theoretically a shell could have been fired in the First World War and kill someone three to four generations down the line ahead of them today. What's so amazing about this area isn't only the extent of the awful loss that was suffered, but how it's remembered. Not only are there more than a hundred small cemeteries within a 16-mile radius of Ypres, filled with the dead from Passchendaele, but there are also many, many men that were lost in the muddy wasteland of Flanders Fields and never found. 42,000 bodies. So their names have been commemorated somewhere very special. On the Menin Gate in Ypres. A huge war memorial, built on this site because of the hundreds of thousands of men who passed through it on their way to the battlefields, many who never returned. It's a vast, impressive archway that the traffic passes through daily and it commemorates casualties from the forces of Australia, Canada, India, South Africa and United Kingdom who died in the salient. To this day, sometimes the remains of missing soldiers are found in the countryside around Ypres, often during building or roadworks, and they receive a proper burial in one of the war cemeteries, or if identified, their name is removed from the Menin Gate. On the Menin Gate are inscriptions proposed by Rudyard Kipling. To the greater glory of God... Here are recorded names of officers and men who fell in Ypres salient, but to whom the fortune of war denied the known and honoured burial given to their comrades in death. They shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 
And every day, the 54,896 missing soldiers who died in the First World War and have no known grave are remembered in a very special way. As it states on the website, lastpost.be. The Daily Act of Remembrance The Salute to the Fallen The last post, the traditional final salute to the fallen, is played by the buglers of the Last Post Association in honour of the memory of the soldiers of the former British Empire and its allies, who died in the Ypres salient during the First World War, 1914-1918. It is the intention of the Last Post Association to maintain this daily act of homage in perpetuity. Every evening, at exactly eight o'clock, the police halts the traffic passing under the Meningate Memorial to the Missing in the Belgium city of Ypres to allow the buglers to play their simple but moving tribute. Everyone can attend this last post ceremony free of charge without the need for prior reservation unless you wish to actively participate. And that's what they've done. Every single evening, 365 days a year since the 2nd of July 1928. At 8pm sharp, the road is closed and those lost men are remembered as the last post is played as a daily tribute to the fallen. Even during Covid, one lone bugler with no crowds stood to sound the last post at 8pm every night. That gives me goosebumps. So far, 32,877 ceremonies have taken place and it gets me wondering what might be planned when they reach the same number of ceremonies as fallen men. Now, the Menin Gate was only a five-minute walk from where we stayed at Christmas. So at 8pm on the first night we arrived, we went to join them. And then, every night for the next five nights that we stayed there.
well, our fourth day in Belgium and our fourth visit to the Menin Gate, which is a very famous now a memorial to 55,000. I think there's 55,000 names inscribed on this huge memorial. What do you make of it? It's very poignant. It's, uh, it's a lot of information I didn't know actually happened. I didn't know much about Belgium during the war, um, so I'm learning a lot. But yes, I had no idea really of the scale of loss and how how many people just died without a grave or without even being named. You know, everywhere you look, there's memorials to people who didn't have a grave or who didn't have a name um, attached to the body. So bodies that have been buried without without knowing who they are. So yeah, it's, um, it's a very moving thing to see and be a part of. And the fact they're still recognising it right up until this day is um, impressive, really. Every night at 8pm, every night, come rain or shine, through Covid, Christmas Day, whatever, every night at 8pm there's a short ceremony where buglers play The Last Post, it's a very famous melody, and uh, there's a very short reading, maybe a laying of a wreath. Uh, groups from across the world can apply to take part in it. That might be a, a sort of bagpipe band or a marching band or associations and British Legion, Royal sort of legions. Uh, groups like that will come and take part. Uh, and, yeah, it happens every night. And we've been to it now three consecutive nights to be part of it and being quite surprised even on Christmas Day that there was so many people there maybe 50, 50, 60 people that come stand at the Menin Gate inside it sort of they shut the road please shut the road for every night just for this six, seven minute ceremony Yeah, and it's been running since 1923 so that's an impressive record except for during the Second World War when um, this area was occupied by the Germans so they moved it to somewhere else in Britain but yeah, then, so that's incredible. You'd, you'd always find it laughable if I was to say to you, you know, write down your, write down the things that you've lost, that you grieve, that you mourn or have done, you know, etch it into stone every night. I want you to stand by that stone and just pause and reflect. Because um, yeah, that's exactly what happens here. It's on a very different scale. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of soldiers that were killed in the First World War in this area. And on this gate, there's, there's 55,000 names of those where there's no known grave. So um, they've inscribed their names here instead of having the grave somewhere else. Yeah, but every night just to stand and remember those is, is just huge. It just makes me realise, you know, how much loss... Uh, how, to, how to grieve it, how to mourn it, how to remember, how to never forget what has been lost. I think we can very quickly forget, and bearing in mind that this is outlived generations, so there'll be people that are helping organise this ceremony be part of it now who weren't even alive when it started. So this is going through the generations. It's not just one generation remembering what they went through. It's an ongoing thing that you know goes through different generations. And that's quite a commitment to something like this a lot of people would have been like well that's my grandparents thing so let's not worry about it so much but they're like no we're just going to keep keep remembering it we've got a few figures a few facts that we've, we've got from steve who's the guy we've just met who's a canadian and he i guess he owns a, sort of a shop felt mm. like a partly shop partly museum just loads of artifacts things that have been found from uh, the war whether weaponry shell cases, swords, blades, 
um, grenades, right through to little bits of things like toys, stationery, candles, swords, which you yeah, me in the stomach with. all sorts that's been found, I guess, unearthed over decades. And Steve's acquired um, some of it's for sale, some of it's his own private display. He mentioned a few things. So we were talking about the fact that you know, even, even as we've driven around this area, we've seen unexploded shells, I guess bombs. The Earth is continually spewing out unexploded bombs that are collected by the farmers and put up on lampposts for the Belgian army, the bomb disposal squad, to collect and then take away and, and they all have sort of controlled explosions. And we were asking Steve about this, about, you know, how, how often does it happen? How often are they collected? And, you know, what he was describing is pretty much, you know, you can't, you can't count. He said he's got, he's got figures, so uh, you can back it up, what he was telling us, that just, just in four months alone, the bat- Battle of Passchendaele, that's a very famous battle, happened about 10 minutes, 15 minutes drive away from where we are now in Ypres, just that battle alone within four months, a hundred million shells would have been dropped. Yeah, minimum. So yeah, hundred potentially a hundred million shells dropped. He doesn't know how many of those wouldn't have exploded, but he said even if he guessed around ten percent, let's say, they definitely haven't found a million shells. Maybe fifty, sixty thousand above that something. So the amount of shells still out there to be, you know, could be millions that are still yet to be found. Yeah, so and here we are, 100 years on. huge. Still, yeah, still regularly being pulled out of the ground by farmers ploughing and farming the land and livestock in the fields, whatever it may be. So still regularly being found and then being collected and being taken away to be exploded. And that battle alone, Passchendaele, uh, 500,000 lives were lost in that battle. 500,000 lives in that war. Just a matter of a few months. Um, mostly British, a lot of Australian as well, a lot of Canadian, and then from other nationalities as well. So just immense scale of loss in this area. Here's a few more facts about Ypres. It was one of the sites that hosted an unofficial Christmas truce in 1914 between the German and British soldiers. Adolf Hitler fought at Ypres during the First World War. Its suffering didn't end after the First World War. During World War II, Belgium, and therefore Ypres, was occupied by Germany, who banned the last post-ceremony from 1940 to 1944. So it was moved to Brookwood Military Cemetery in England temporarily, the largest Commonwealth War Cemetery in the UK. On the same evening that Polish forces liberated Ypres from the Germans, the ceremony resumed at the Menim Gate, in spite of heavy fighting still going on in other parts of the town. After the Second World War, Ypres was extensively rebuilt. Not surprising for a town where it's said that at its peak, 20 shells were falling on the town every minute. Ypres' medieval and Renaissance architecture was completely flattened during the war. It's said someone on horseback could look across the whole town. But the whole of it was reconstructed, much of it in the style of its original buildings during the 1920s and 1930s, and it's now considered one of the best examples of post-conflict reconstruction, with most of its oldest-looking buildings only being around 80 years old. I recommend googling Rebuilding Ypres to see the images of the devastation and the reconstruction. It now has the title City of Peace, and maintains a close friendship with Hiroshima, both witnessing warfare at its worst. Ypres, one of the first places where chemical warfare was employed, Hiroshima suffering the debut of nuclear warfare. Then, less than two kilometres from Passchendaele, is Tynecott, 
the world's largest cemetery for Commonwealth soldiers, where 12,000 men lie buried, and we visited there too. Not only is this where many soldiers were buried, but it's also the home to the Tyne Cot Memorial to the Missing, a list which commemorates 34,887 men from the UK and New Zealand forces who died after the 16th of August 2017. All deaths before that are on the Menim Gate, and this list is etched around the curved walls of the cemetery. On arrival at Tynecott, we parked the car and walked along a pathway towards a small, flat building that's the visitor centre. The cemetery is located in the area known as the Ypres Salient, where Commonwealth French, Belgium and German forces fought almost continuously through the First World War. So you're surrounded by beautiful countryside, fairly flat, so you can see for quite a long way, which gives you a poignant sense of realising that what you're looking at is, or was, battlefields. As you near the visitor's centre, you can't see the cemetery at all. It's hidden at this point, but you do start to hear something being played on a hidden speaker. Ernest Leonard Gaze, age 19. Thomas Kilby Keeley, age 29. John Turner, Age 24. Frederick Ewan Baldwin Falconer. Age 22. Albert Clark. Age 21. Every few seconds, a name is read from the Memorial to the Missing Register. You quickly get a sense of the enormity of these lists of men when you think of how long you'd have to stand there to hear all the names. I did a quick bit of maths and if it takes two seconds to read each name, you'd be there for over 18 hours. When you enter the visitor centre, you have a similar speaker that continues the names and there's just no getting away from the loss of human life here. Austin Patrick Hudson, age 24. Christopher Hartley, age 31. Harold John Brookfield, age 28. Joseph Holmroyd Ratton, age 35. The simple but very modern room has many historical items, quotes, lists and information on the walls. And you soon notice that with the names being read out loud, there are also photos of the lost coming up on a screen, one by one, and a collage of all of them together. I'll put a video on the blog. A sign reads, During the First World War, the British Army decided not to repatriate the bodies of the soldiers to their country of origin. It was argued that those that fought together should remain united in death, close to the place where they died. Some were buried in makeshift battlefield cemeteries, others remained where they fell. Many were lost in the mud of Passchendaele. Special army units searched the battlefields for bodies. Together with remains already buried in smaller cemeteries, they were taken to large concentration cemeteries like Tynecott Cemetery. And on the walls are large quotes like John Lowe's fiancé, 10th of January 1918. The thought that Jock died for his country is no comfort to me. His memory is all I have left to love. A very old, tatty letter taped together, dated the 2nd of May 1918, contains these words. 
Dear Sir, in answer to your inquiry about your son, 707 Private Matthew H. Austin, 35th Battalion, AIF, we deeply regret to inform you that we have received an unofficial report which we fear leaves little hope that he is alive. 1877 Private A. Turner of the same unit, interviewed at the 3rd General Hospital at Oxford, stated that he saw your son lying dead on October 12, 1917, at the regimental aid post, an old pillbox, apparently killed by a machine gun bullet to the head. Another man remarked to Private Turner, There is poor old Pies, your son's nickname. We must point out that this report is strictly unofficial and your son is only as yet reported officially as missing. We are making further inquiries and will at once advise you of any information we may obtain. With our sincere sympathy in your anxiety, which we full realise, yours faithfully, Miss Vera Deakin, Secretary. A form filled out with gaps for names and dates reads, Madam, it is my painful duty to inform you that no further news having been received relative to number 242521, rank, private, regiment, 5th, York and Lanks, who has been missing since... 9th, 10th, 1917, the Army Council have been regretfully constrained to conclude that he is dead and that his death took place on 9-10-1917 or since. A visitor's book echoes the message we will remember them over and over and someone has quoted George Santayana, only the dead have seen the end of war. After you pass through this smallish building, you start to walk down a path on the outside of the northern boundary of the cemetery and it comes into view for the first time. As you walk along the boundary, you reach a road and turn left along the boundary wall to the cemetery's entrance, which is a stone archway containing more information, a timeline, a layout, and images of the original wooden crosses that stood in place before the final gravestones were laid. There's a note and an old photo of Sergeant Lewis McGee, who served with the Australian Infantry during the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. His battalion captured the area where the cemetery is and Lewis single-handedly stormed one of the nearby German bunkers. He was killed in action eight days later at 29 years old. For his courage, he was awarded the Victoria Cross and is one of six recipients of it buried or commemorated at Tynecott. There's also a metal safe, which all the cemeteries have, which, when opened, contains a book entitled Cemetery Register with the Commonwealth War Graves Visitors Book where you can find specific names and graves. When you go through the archway, you can either wander through the graves on either side or there's a central path that leads up a slope to a big memorial at the end, which includes the Cross of Sacrifice, the War Stone and the Tynecott Memorial to the Missing, which is a long curved wall containing all the names being read out loud at the visitor's centre. And this forms the eastern boundary wall, which also hides the cemetery from the car park behind it when you arrive. There are also three German blockhouses that were fought over during the war and they're incorporated into the design of the cemetery. I recorded some of my thoughts as I wandered round. Okay, so I'm currently in Tynecott Cemetery in Belgium and this is the largest Commonwealth War Graves Commission cemetery in the world. It's the final resting place of nearly 12,000 First World War servicemen and more than 8,300 of those remain unidentified. And they died in the fighting around Ypres from 1914 to 1918, but most fell during the Battle of Passchendaele. Quite a high position the cemetery is on, so there's a lovely view across Ypres and just the countryside, very green. 
and the graves are all made of a white stone or marble sort of effect and there's just thousands of them all perfectly lined and spaced across this large square shape and then there's like a semicircle shape at the top where these big walls with pillars in them follow round and they've got lots of stone panels and on those panels are etched names um, and they're the names of 35,000 servicemen of the United Kingdom and New Zealand forces who also died between August 1917 and November 1918 and they have no known grave. So it's a beautiful afternoon, the sun's shining and the sky's blue and the, the shadows falling off the graves are just long, which make all the lines in between just stripy on the grass. It's a, it's a true mix of sort of awe, beauty, remembrance, peace. There's a very peaceful feel about it. It doesn't feel mournful, it feels respectful. It's just it's been laid out really nicely and so there's something very regimented about it, like they would have been in life. There's this army feel of these sort of groups of people all stood shoulder to shoulder in life and now in death. So it's a powerful place to be. There is a lot of names and a lot of graves and... I think the thing that stands out is that they all died for the same reason and that's not something that you get in your average cemetery. Normally the variety is what you come for and if you want to have a look around and see graves you see the different ages and the dates and how old they were when they died. The different gravestones tend to vary depending on when they were buried and what sort of things people were doing with gravestones at the time but these are all the same, same reason, same gravestone. Um, a lot of them have names on, like I'm standing here now, it would have a number, like 15525 Lance Corporal, DG Bell, Yorkshire Regiment, 4th of October 1917. There's no date of birth, there's just the date of death. And then a lot of them don't have any information, so it just says a soldier of the Great War, and then it has a cross etched on the stone, and at the bottom it says known unto God, the engraving for those who haven't got a name. And then there's others like that say a soldier of the Great War, but then it says the King's Liverpool Regiment, known unto God. So there's a bit more information, but still no name. Some of the graves have the crest on of the, uh, I guess it would be what regiment they were part of. So there's like a New Zealand with a, the, a leaf on it. There's West Yorkshire with a horse on it. There's some with flowers. There's some with other animals or crests, a Scottish one. And each at the end of each row there's a number, so you can find people in different sections. And then as you enter the graveyard, there's a little, um, like a safe with a metal door on it that you can open, which we've seen in most places we've been, where you can get out the book and you can look through it if you're looking for someone specific or you're looking for a particular regiment.
the land which this cemetery stands on was actually a free gift of the Belgian people for the perpetual resting place for those of the Allied armies who fell in the war, which is a lovely thing because it's a big patch of land, so it's just nice to see that people honour things like this and and do things like that without there being some sort of money exchanged or fight needed to keep this alive. As a country, it's amazing how they honour this battle that happened way beyond anything I've seen in any other country. There's a real commitment to to the loss and it is weird to be walking on soil that has been or has seen this much bloodshed and this much death. This isn't a graveyard where people have been added one at a time as they've died. This is a graveyard where thousands have been added at a time and it's an odd thing to see no date or all very similar dates within a year of each other in a graveyard this size. You can't quite take in the enormity and see it as, as people, really. It's hard to imagine this many people died fighting for their country, for freedom. And this isn't even the last war that we had. This isn't the Second World War. This is the First World War. What it does make me wonder is what does a society look like that's going through this? Because we look at the men here and the loss of life and those that were fighting, but each of these men represent a family and parents and children and to have possibly walked into social circles or churches and families and know that every single person was dealing with something similar in the way of loss. I just can't quite imagine that. You know, I've been part of church circles and big churches and the idea of walking into a church on a Sunday morning and seeing my friends and all of them having either lost their husband or a fiancé or not knowing where they are or just having them lost forever or injured forever or even to have them come back and be the only one amongst your friends and peers that had someone come back. But then to also know that maybe your dad was missing and not just your partner and to think that everybody was going through that. I just, I can't fathom what that kind of loss feels like in society and on a wider scale for women, for, for men, for workplaces. It's just such a foreign concept and I... I think I worry looking around something like this that it will get lost because I don't know that our country has the respect for it that a country like Belgium obviously has. And I see people walking around here now and some I think can get a taste of what happened here but there's also a lot of families with some older kids that are running around jumping on and off the the memorial thing and screaming and shouting and it's all about having their photos taken and having fun and things to climb on and I worry that we're losing the respect for the past and what these people did and that would be a great shame. Not because it's just history and it needs to be remembered as such but more that if we don't have respect and remember this sort of thing and learn from it how do we avoid it in the future? It's just a bit 
worrying to me and I feel like there's something special when you learn about the big things in life that happened and people fought and where people lost lives and you know valiantly fought for something they believed in to make that to make light of that or to just not teach our next generations about the importance of it they lose something special if they think their life is just given and gifted and easy that it just is what it is rather than being something that someone else fought for someone else's dad someone else's husband someone else's son stepped out at the age of 20 30 40 and literally gave their life for it went through that fear that wasn't really it was a choice but in many ways it also wasn't a choice and I think that should be remembered and respected it would be a shame to lose that so I like that there are places like this where there's not a single piece of graffiti on any grave where the gardens are respected and cared for where it's clean where it's quiet mostly It's so peaceful. I can't tell you how peaceful it is. Apart from the weird drill noise that's going on near some houses nearby, <laughs> there's such a peace about it. Like, you can really believe where the expression rest in peace came from. The Battle of Passchendaele itself took place over three months and they reckon the casualties and deaths were up to half a million, which gives you some idea of the scale of what we're dealing with here. In the area where the battle was fought, a local guy who collects war memorabilia told us recently that it was probably in the region of 100 million shells and bombs that were brought over and that went off, and that still, you know, a lot still lie in the soil now that's that's the size that's the scale of the kind of battle we're talking about and on the menin gate there's sort of i think something like 50,000 names of people who don't have a grave so the 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 numbers are always in the thousands and it's just endless and it's quite frightening and almost impossible to imagine and i don't use that phrase lightly because I know it's not a good phrase to use, but almost impossible to imagine what that kind of loss would have looked and felt like. The whole town of Ypres pretty much was completely flattened and has been rebuilt since, so... So much loss, not just life, buildings, history, land, time. Um, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot to take in. I think you'll agree it's not possible to encounter grief and loss like this and not be moved in some way. We so easily forget as we look out of our window in countries not facing war right now that people have fought for this freedom that we have. Young men in their teens, twenties, thirties and forties ran towards certain death to keep our country from coming into the hands of others. So easily they could have thought it wouldn't make a difference. One life doesn't matter. So easily they could have succumbed to the crippling fear they must have been carrying, the soul and mind-destroying grief that tore apart those that even survived. But they didn't. They fought. Not because they were strong, but because they believed it was the right thing to do. Not all of them, obviously, and many had no choice, but that doesn't diminish their experience to me. And that is why I believe history is so important. 
whether you agree with the war strategy, vehemently disagree, or look back with hindsight now and have some lofty opinion of it all, it happened. Debate doesn't change their death, and if we don't acknowledge it and remember it, then we can't learn from it. We cannot cancel it out as our culture so often wants to do. And that is why we continue to hear the words, we will remember them. Because that's the one thing we can do. We can make sure their lives weren't given in vain. And that's the torch that has been passed to us. And as the first-hand experiences of fighting in our world wars starts to die out, it is down to us who heard the stories first-hand to keep them alive and to make sure that history never repeats itself in this way again. In the spring of 1915, shortly after losing a friend in Ypres, a Canadian doctor, Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, wrote this now famous poem after seeing poppies growing in battle-scarred fields. And it seems a fitting end to this episode. In Flanders Fields In Flanders Fields the poppies blow, Between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky, the larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe, to you from failing hands we throw, the torch be yours to hold it high, if ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. for listening just a quick extra note from me there's going to be no podcast next week because we're off to do something a bit different it is actually grief or more specifically death related but we'll be sharing all the details about that over the coming months